Hey, it's NPR's Book of the Day. I'm Andrew Limbong. I remember being pretty young as a kid and finding out that the family soap we were using, which we brought home in bulk from a recent trip to Indonesia, supposedly contained skin-lightening ingredients. Its whole shtick was that if you used it enough, your skin would become less dark. <laughs> Probably a spurious claim, but that was its intention. Which is to say, I learned that despite my maybe well-meaning teachers being like, the color of your skin doesn't matter, it obviously does to a lot of people in a lot of different ways. Today, we've got two books that take wildly different approaches to skin color. In a bit, we'll hear from a poet who is surprisingly blunt about what she sees in the color of her skin. But first, The Last White Man is a speculative fiction book written by Moshin Hamid about a white guy who turns not white. And he tells NPR Scott Simon about how widespread and global our baggage about skin color is. When morning Anders, who is white man, wakes up and finds his skin has turned brown. His girlfriend, Una, will eventually follow and much of the rest of his unnamed town and society Let's ask Mosin Hamid to read from his new work, The Last White Man. Mr. Hamid. People who knew him no longer knew him. He passed them in his car or on the sidewalk, where sometimes they gave him extra room, and where sometimes, unthinkingly, he did the same. No one hit him or knifed him or shot him. No one grabbed him. No one even shouted at him. Not after the woman in the car. At least not yet and Anders was not sure where his sense of threat was coming from. But it was there. It was strong. And once it was obvious to him that he was a stranger to those he could call by name, he did not try to look in their faces, to let his gaze linger in ways that could be misconstrued. Mosin Hamid, the two-time Booker Prize finalist and author of Exit West, The Reluctant Fundamentalist, and other acclaimed novels, joins us now from New York City. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. How would you describe what's happening in this unnamed place, society? So, Anders is experiencing something pretty strange. He went to bed with light skin, and one morning he wakes up with his skin dark. And he's dealing with um, looking different, feeling different, um, not being recognized. At the same time, it's beginning to dawn on him that he's not the only one. And as the novel progresses, uh, we're in a world where people's identity, where their sense of race is beginning to be completely overturned. You, of course, have written very piercingly about, um, you were born in Pakistan um, and had lived, at the time of September 11th, 2001, you'd lived 18 of your 30 years in the US or UK. But September 11th, you felt the world looked at you differently. Yes, it was a a strange feeling because up until then, I mean, obviously I was a man with a Muslim name and brown skin, but I hadn't felt, you know, particularly discriminated against or thought of as somebody who was particularly a threat or somebody to be suspicious of. And after 9-11, that changed quite profoundly where I was being pulled out of the line in airports and people would be uncomfortable if I got into a train or a bus with a big backpack, Mm -hmm. particularly if I hadn't shaved. So um, I began to feel like, you know, I'd lost something. And over time, as I thought about, you know, what was it that I'd lost? I realized it was in a sense, a kind of partial whiteness, a, Mm -hmm. a kind of being able to 
not be someone of suspicion, you know, not be someone who was a threat. And so the novel, I think, was gestating for the last uh, 20 years. Hmm. Anders works at a gym, as does Una, who is a yoga instructor. Uh, things immediately get different there, too, don't they? Yeah, I mean, Anders goes to work, and uh, he's well-liked. But he finds that, you know, people are looking at him differently, naturally, that he's, you know, something strange. But also, he's finding it hard to be himself. You know, he keeps trying to want to show that he hasn't changed, that he's the same guy, and to talk like, you know, he speaks and act like he acts. But he becomes very self-conscious doing this, and he realizes trying to be yourself is impossible. You know, if you're trying to be yourself, you're not naturally yourself anymore. And if you're trying to be like other people to make them at ease, you're actually going to make them uncomfortable. Why does he get a gun? So what begins to happen is people start getting very upset and uh, and society begins to get increasingly mired in conflict. And more and more people are, are changing completely. Yeah, more and more people are changing. And, um, and some people, um, you know, want to stop this process. They think, you know, perhaps it's a disease or perhaps it's something that you, you can, if you get rid of the people who are changing, you'll protect those who are left or uh, you'll somehow be able to prevent this change from happening. And so you see the rise of these armed militias and people who are arming themselves against the militias. And Anders finds himself facing what feels to him like a very real personal threat. Why is the society unnamed? It's unnamed for a number of different reasons, but... I, I recognize it's none of my business, in a sense, because it's the book you've written. But <laughs> no, no, it, it is very much your business, and it's the reader's business. When a reader gets a book, they get these words, but those words are not what they experience. They experience people and images and feelings that they are creating inside themselves. And when a reader imagines a novel into existence, they are making half of that novel. And I try to write novels in a way that leave readers quite free to play that role. So I tend to write small novels. I tend to write novels where a lot of details are, are missing. And so if a reader in America wants to imagine it as being small town America, and if a reader in Britain or in Scandinavia wants to imagine it in their country, or if you want to imagine it somewhere else, it's, it's open to you. I, at various times, made it South Africa. I made it India and the caste system. I think one of the things that I've realized living outside the United States is, is just how widespread these phenomena are. One might imagine that, for example, uh, current political trends in America are unique to America. But you look around the world, and in fact, very similar things are happening in very different countries. So whether that's, you know, Britain with Brexit, whether that's uh, Turkey under Erdogan, or India under Modi, or Brazil under Bolsonaro, or Russia under Putin, in so many countries, you have a group um, or Pakistan, of course, you have a group that thinks of itself as a kind of dominant group that imagines its position as sort of um, becoming uncertain and that has a kind of nostalgic politics that talks about, you know, going back to the better way that things used to be. So, yes, Anders and Una's story certainly could be a story set in many places that are very different from the United States. You were considered one of the most important of contemporary novelists uh, in the world. Is that a kind of burden? <laughs> uh, you know, I don't know about that. I think, uh, you know, my kids would probably disagree with that characterization uh, of, of their bumbling dad. But I would put it slightly differently. Yeah. I think that as, as somebody who has lived between countries and is a very mongrelized, hybridized kind of person, I'm, I think, personally very sensitive 
to the idea that societies are going to, in a sense, evolve in a way that excludes mongrelized, hybridized people like myself. You know, when I start to feel the sense that people are talking about who's a real Pakistani or a real American or a real British person, it's not something that I experience theoretically. It's something I experience very personally mm -hmm. as threatening to the kind of human being that I am. So I suppose my, my response to your question would be to say that it's because of so many things in the world that uh, are not the way I wish them to be that I write these books. And if you gave me a choice, would you rather have the world that you wanted and not be writing books or have this world and keep writing? You know, I'd be happy to stop writing. Mosin Hamid, his novel, The Last White Man. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Alora Young's debut poetry collection, Walking Gentry Home, is a memoir about the women in her family's lineage. And in this interview with NPR's Leila Fadl, she's extremely direct and plain-spoken about the weight of history that her family has carried, and by extension, she carries with her, too, every day on her skin. A young Black woman coming of age traced her life back through generations of mothers in her family. My name is Alora Young. I'm 19 years old. I'm a poet. I'm an activist. And I am a lover. Young has a gift for spoken word, and she archives her family's history in her new poetry collection, Walking Gentry Home. She recounts the stories of nine generations of women in her family, all the way back to Amy, who was the first of Young's four mothers to arrive in Tennessee. Amy was enslaved and had the child of the man who enslaved her. The book takes us through all the stories that come after until we get to Young's own story, still being told as she moves from childhood to adulthood. I asked Young to read the first poem from the book. I have many mothers. They are mostly black. They are mostly broken. They have existed here for centuries. They are dying with the towns that birthed them. Wow. Can you tell me why you started the book this way? I started the book this way because I feel like this is a story that doesn't have a starting place. Mm -hmm. And I started it with the line, I have many mothers, because... For thousands of generations, Black women have existed on this planet, and all of the culmination of thousands of women have led to me being here. Was this always going to be a memoir of your family history, or did it become that as you wrote your poetry? It always needed to be about my family's history, because these poems, they didn't start out about me. Mm -hmm. They started out about not knowing the names of my family members, about losing my grandmother and thinking what difficulty she must have gone through being a pregnant teenager in the South in the 1960s. Yeah. It's the brutal realities that my family members faced. And I wanted to make sure their stories were never, ever, ever forgotten. You call it Walking Gentry Home. Let's talk about who Gentry is. Gentry is my great-grandmother. So when my grandmother Gentry was 14 years old, she got pregnant. And then, of course, she got married. And one day, she got into a fight with my great-grandfather, Walter D., 
And she walked all the way from her house with her husband, miles and miles, back to her early family home Mm -hmm. where she grew up. And she gets there and her mom's like, oh, hey. And like they spend the day together and she hangs out with her brother. And at the end, Gentry says, mama, I want to come home. Mm -hmm. And then Nanny Pearl, who is Gentry's mom, says, okay, Ortho B, walk Gentry home. And can you imagine the shock of thinking you are home, thinking that you've finally come back to your family only to be told that the home you grew up in is not your home anymore. She says, Ortho B, walk your sister home, walk Gentry home back to the house that she's making. And I think it's so powerful because I think that is the transition from girlhood to womanhood. Mm -hmm. It's walking from the home you grow up in to the home you make. Your poems explore the history of your family in so many different directions. And one of the things that struck me was when you were talking about your own complexion. I don't know if this is a plight that all lighter-skinned women of color face, but it's something that I know that me and my other sister have definitely experienced. And it is the feeling that when you look at yourself in the mirror, you see that the color of your skin is the product of uninvited attention from people who enslaved your family. And I look the way I look, not because either of my parents are consensually white, but because my bloodline is filled with non-consensual whiteness. Hmm. And it's honestly a hard thing to think about and it's a hard thing to experience because no one wants to look at themselves and see rape. Wow. But that's just a reality that I have to live with. And that's something I see when I look in the mirror. Did you talk about that with the women in your family that you interviewed for this book? Yes, I talked about it with my sisters, definitely. It's a hard conversation because colorism is so prevalent in the Black community. Right, which is something you also write about. Yes. And I want to make sure that through discussing this troubling sensation, I feel I don't dismiss the struggles of darker skinned women. But to me, darker skin has always been a symbol of true beauty because my mom is brown skinned and I see her as the epitome of all things good and gentle and compassionate. In your book, you write about a lot of painful and shameful history, but you also write in this hopeful way about partnership and how you can't let hate devour you, that you can't climb alone out of something. When you write these things, these poems, are they a path to solutions, to understanding, to breaking the cycle? Yes, I believe so. I believe that poetry is such a powerful tool because it can convey the human experience in a way that no other kind of writing can. And I believe that we can use this art form as a tool for education and as a tool for communication. I believe poetry is something that can cross any line 
any border. And I think we need to try to cross these lines and cross these borders Hmm. and connect our world through the arts because we can make the world better. Lori Young is the Youth Poet Laureate of the Southern United States, and her new book is called Walking Gentry Home. What a voice you are. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. And that's it for this week on NPR's Book of the Day. If you want more, you can sign up for our newsletter at npr.org slash newsletter slash books. I'm Andrew Limbong. The podcast is produced by Nina Rao and edited by Megan Sullivan with help from Mason Tran. Our founding editor is Petra Mayer. The show elements for this week were produced and edited by V8 Lee, Peter Breslow, Matthew Shorman, Jan Stewart, Matt Ozig, Ashley Brown, Justine Kennan, Elena Burnett, Ed McNulty, Samantha Balaban, Rena Advani, and Jivika Verma. Beth Donovan is our managing editor. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.